It's good to be in a contemplative mood. Happy Mother's Day to those of you who are moms. Uh, I can see a lot of folks are off celebrating their mom's day. I can always show more love to moms. There's never enough of that. At least that's what my wife says to her boys. Never get tired of showing mom love. Jeremy, thanks. I want to thank you for that last song in particular because um, what we're going to talk about tonight, uh, it's a good jumping off place. How, How big is your view of God? How big is it? Do you think he does the impossible? Do you think he he pays attention to a corner of the earth that many of us maybe had never paid attention to called Minamar, which used to be called Burma? Or do you think he can take care of the little stuff? How big is your God? And how deep is his reservoir? Because that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We... We've been taught, so we've been on the series of the Maker's Instructions, and we're kind of we kind of take a break every now and then. Um, we're trying to stay in sync with the rest of the Lake Avenue community who meets on Saturday evening or Sunday mornings. And, and on those weeks, we decided as uh, the, the core team and, and the staff team that we wanted to come back and revisit what it means to be church's community during those weeks that we weren't doing Maker's Instructions or the series that will follow after this called Songs of Experience. So. We, uh, we, we talked about how critical it is we keep coming back to what does it mean to be a church. A lot of us at Lake come from very different places. Some of us with no quote-unquote church history in our background. Some of us with very different paths in terms of church history in our background. But there's some core things that make us community. Uh, Eric Holbert, one of our, our core team and, and our, our college uh, gathering leader uh, said to us, well, why don't we just center this in Ephesians 4 as kind of our jumping off place, which is always a good place for talking about the church. Just listen to these words. We're going to do Bible drill tonight. So if you need one, this is a good chance to go grab one at the back table because um, we're going to spend some time hopscotching when you hear what the, the subject is here in a second. But here, let me just read you some words from Ephesians 4, beginning with verse 11, for those of you who want to keep up. Uh, and I'm picking up in the middle of a paragraph, it appears, although, again, editors will wrestle about these things for a long time. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets. He's speaking of Jesus here. Some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Let me continue. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love. We will in all things grow up into him who's the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body is joined and held together. Every supporting ligament grows and builds itself in love as each part does its work. That's the picture of what this thing, church, should be, this community, this, this group of people that's different because simply because we're followers of Jesus. It's not simple, but that's who we should be. Everyone with a role that makes sense in the community, you have a part to play. Everyone with service as a lifestyle. It's not just an idea. It's not something you do on the spur of the moment. It's actually our lifestyle. Unity is a norm. You know why? Because we're reconciled. Not because we're better than anybody else, but because Jesus has poured himself out for us. And we have chosen to be reconciled to God, thus we can be reconciled to each other. And that we would have knowledge of God that would mature us in our faith. You know, little uh, Ruby Whitworth, I don't know where she is right now, if she's in the room. Uh, Jet and Kelly's daughter is just about a year now. 
Is that right? 14 months. You know what? If, if Ruby stays this tall, and she's kind of staying that tall, isn't she, Kelly? <laughs> if Ruby stays this tall at 14 months, when she's 14 years old, there's a problem. She's not matured. The, when the community comes together, it's not to stay where we are. It's to have God mature us. Well, a few weeks ago, we looked at the idea of community as a fellowship, in a sense. Out on a journey, we, we looked back at some of the story of the people of Israel. They were just leaving Egypt walking through the desert from oasis to oasis, searching what God would have for them. And then together that night, that past night, we shared communion, and then we broke bread together around tables and shared a meal. That's an aspect of community, what it means to be the people of faith from many different places drawn together to connect. Well, tonight we're going to look at another shared commitment that we have as community. Martin Luther said, There's three conversions. I love this. Uh, That'd be Martin Luther, the original, not Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther said this three. It takes three conversions. God needs to do in a person. God must convert the heart. He must convert the mind. And it's interesting. He left this one for last and he must convert the wallet. Heart, mind and wallet. Why do you think we're uncomfortable about talking about money in the in kingdom communities? As a staff and as a core team, as we've, we've talked about some of the, the story of, of Warehouse's journey, um, one of the things that, that we wanted to come back to is this idea of what it means to be community on a journey, not just Warehouse, but for the whole Lake Avenue family. And I can tell you, friends, anytime within the whole Lake Avenue church we talk about money, everybody starts to squirm. But why? Why are we uncomfortable with this? Is it maybe because we abuse it? The churches historically, have often been guilty of abuse when it comes to money? Is it because maybe I'm just kind of a selfish person (laughs) and I don't want you messing in my bank account, Scott? Or maybe I literally have none and it always makes me feel guilty because I have no way to respond in a way that we typically talk about response and giving money. It's just uncomfortable. Can we all just agree talking about money is uncomfortable? We'd love to do the worship thing, the prayer thing, but the money thing. You know, Jesus was not uncomfortable talking about this topic. Um, If you've got one of those cool kind of answer edition sort of Bibles with the red letters that that highlight the, the dialogue that's quoted of Jesus... If you looked at that, you'd find the number two topic of those red letters is money and wealth. Number one, kingdom of God. Number two, money and wealth. Many of you know that. Did you know that 50% of his parables, you know, the stories he told to try and either explain things or completely mess with your head. 50% of those parables center around money and wealth. And if you do all the math, and I didn't, but those good folks at Google, the source of all truth, they tell me, that 2,350 verses in the Bible refer to money. Now check this. I did some math. I was an English major, so I'm not really good at math, but I actually pulled some off this time. If you looked at all the verses in the Bible, which right now I forget what that number was that Mr. Google told me, but but you looked at 2,350 as a percentage, 13% of this whole story of God is about money and wealth commenting on it. 13%. Do you know what that means? God like tithed his own book. Thank you. That's probably the most profound observation in my whole week of study. 
I'm off 13%. That's like a tithe plus. Dude, very impressive. And as one who hates to be edited in my work, it is. You know, you don't want people telling you how much to put in. God went over the top. We'll talk about that tithe thing in a little bit. God thinks this subject is crucial to our community health. Do you? That's my question to you. Do you think it's crucial to this thing we call the church and its health? You know, let, let's, let's rewind the tape a little bit. If you've been part of a church community, whether it be the warehouse community, larger lake family, anywhere, anytime, you, you've been part of something that, was, that, that said it was different, right? You, you, you join a community like this because you want to encounter God and His people, and it's supposed to be different. One of the ways it's supposed to be different is how it looks at what, we, what it possesses and what we individually possess. Because if there's no difference than the outside world, what are we saying about what it means to follow Jesus? Even that little clip you heard from Shane Claiborne as a plug, he was asking some of those very questions. But I will confess to you, I'm very uncomfortable with the subject when it comes to what it, where we are in the church also. Because I think a lot of abuse. I think a lot of good folks who've given very faithfully to their churches and the money has been abused. I think folks, a lot of good folks who've sent in money to guys on tele, and gals on television. And they got a $50 prayer rag, personally blessed. Or folks who give faithfully to their church or their, their denomination for years and years. And now most of that giving is going out the window in sexual abuse payments. Is this the opinion that the world has of what the church is and we as a community of Jesus followers? Do they they hear the story that Darla just shared with us about a bunch of folks who said that, that because they ran off the road in Cambodian law says if you cause an accident, you go to jail. And so most people flee, so no one ever goes to jail. But this brother of ours stayed to care for victims, to help them. He wasn't going anywhere. The tire blew out on this vehicle. It was an accident in the middle of nowhere. The van rolled over two or three times, I think, what the note said. Do we hear stories about people coming to the rescue and using money well, the church using its money well like that? Or do we just hear these other stories, we being the outside world particularly? And if so, what's the impression they're going to have of Christians, money, and wealth? That is not my God. I want my God to have a very different impression out there in the public space. I want to, I said we're going to bounce around a little bit. So there's some passages I'm going to throw up here on screen for you. And I, I, I want to read them. Um, and because uh, we've we got to get a little context for what God has to say. And as I said, there's 13% now that you can go and find. So I just randomly picked some from both the Old and New Testament, two of each, for those of you who think fairness overall is, is good. So we've got two from each. Um, Find Malachi, that's or Malachi, for those of you who think he's an Italian prophet. It's the last book in the First Testament. And um, I'm going to jump around a little bit. I'm not going to read all of those verses. And here's just a word of warning from this pastor's heart. When someone doesn't read everything, be very careful. And I mean that really seriously. Be really, really careful. Scripture is a full story that needs a full reading. I'm now warning you, I'm about to skip over a few verses to keep the, the progression going. 
But always understand the context. It's like if, if you just picked up uh, Dickens' Tale of Two Cities and picked up the middle page 186 or whatever it is and just read that, you really would have a picture of a story, but it'd be a really, really weird picture of the story. You really need to read everything in front of 186 and probably a bunch that happens after. So it is with Scripture. Be careful. Now that I've given you that warning, I'm about to skip over a bunch of Scripture. <clears throat> I didn't say I had integrity. I just said I'd warn you. Okay. Malachi 3. Listen to what God has to say through this prophet. See, I will send my messengers who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand? The question is asked. Skipping down to three in the middle. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable in the Lord that the nation was divided in two. It was no longer just Israel. It was Israel and Judah. That they will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years. Skipping on to the beginning of six. Which if I can find my little numbers will tell me where it is. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord God Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? God asked them rhetorically. Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? And he answers, in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, said the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. How big's your God? Do you get how big this God says he is? And do you get why he's saying it, that last bit? For yours, then all the nations will call you blessed. God is making a name for himself. He will be made known. He will be famous or he will be infamous. A lot of that depends on his people. Flip with me back to Leviticus 27. This is one of the places where you can find this term tithe. And it's actually explained really well here. So I'm picking on this one. Leviticus 27, 30 to 34. Again, Leviticus is a book of law. How the people of Israel, the followers of God are to live. He says, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. Now, again, this is an agrarian society, right? Everybody's pretty much farmers. So that's why he's telling them to do all this stuff. Because if you're thinking, hey, cool, I don't have a plum tree in my backyard. I live in a little apartment, Scott, or I live in a little back house. I'm covered. No problem. Um, got bad news. He's actually uh, going way beyond the, uh, just the agrarian folks. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It's holy to the Lord. If a man redeems any of his tithe, that's as he gets a little of it back because he needs to. He needs to buy it out. He must add a fifth of the value to it. So he repays the loan with interest to God. 
The entire tithe of the herd or the flock, every tenth animal passing under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. He must not pick out only the good from the bad or make any substitution. If he does make a substitution, both the animal and its substitute become holy. They cannot be redeemed. These are the commands the Lord gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. Do you get the sense he's serious? And yet there's mercy in the tithe. Because what if this family is in the midst of crisis? God even makes a way to redeem part of it. And then make it right later. It's kind of like borrowing from your 401k. You know, there's this window you can borrow out of, and then as long as you get it back in time, you aren't penalized. Kind of like that in early church history. So how do you view your money and possessions? I mean, we know God really wants our life, which is why I called this your money or my money and my life. How about just my life? You already got my life. I signed up Jesus. I'm in. And now you want my money too. How are you with that? How are you with money and possessions? Because you know what, friends? You know what the world often thinks of us, as I I commented on? What do we think about it? What do you think about it? And how would you ever determine what you really think about it? I would suggest to you that something like your debit card record will tell you a lot about what you think of money, wealth, and following Jesus. Used to be, we could look in our checkbook, those of us who used to have a checkbook. Now it's, for me anyway, it's really my debit card statement. It tells me a lot about what I think about money. Flip with me to Matthew 6, some of the red letter edition stuff. Verse 21. Again, I'm going to pull just one verse out of the middle. We're actually going to come back to the Sermon on the Mount in a little bit and read some more of it. But this is the great, in many ways, the great New Testament uh, retelling of how it is that, that we as followers of Jesus should walk and live. Look at 621. Jesus goes right to the core here. He says this. He's been talking about money and all of this. Well, again, we're going to come back to it in a little bit. Or money and possessions. He says in 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Is that not like saying, what's on your debit statement tells me what your, where your heart is? Where our treasure is, where we spend it, what we do with it. Sermon on the Mount, it's an instruction book in many ways. And it's really, really hard. Giving's a spiritual discipline. Spiritual, yeah, I got that, Scott. Discipline, not so much, don't really like that. Let's go back to spiritual. It's a discipline. I want to tell you two stories. The first one involves my wife. I'm in my apartments before we were married. And um, I don't remember exactly how the topic came up. But my wife says something like, oh, rats, pulls out of her purse a check, and she goes, I forgot to give my tithe today. I was about, I don't know, 22 or so, 23 at the time. So this was a while ago. And I looked at her and I go, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. You mean you forgot to give today? She goes, well, yeah, I guess. But what I meant, yeah, I guess, whatever, tithe, give, use whatever word you want. I go, well, no. Scott, going to you know show how spiritually mature I am here. No, no, tithe has a very specific meaning. You know, it's like a tenth of everything. And she goes, yeah. At this point, I realize that my wife is in a very different place when it comes to obeying God and giving than I have ever personally experienced. <laughs> because the look on her face is no longer, yes, God, I know it's a tithe. It's the, wait, wait, wait a minute. You don't give seriously, look. And I looked at her and I said, you really are given 10%? Are you given 10% net, 10% gross? 
She goes, it's none of your business because clearly you aren't anywhere near 10% anyway. Whoa! <laughs> Didn't say she was wrong. Literally, she was the first person that I ever knew who tithed. Tithe is an Old Testament concept. Many would say it's still active. Many would say that it's actually not something for this new covenant we're in since Jesus came. It actually, this is actually a period of celebration, and the tithe is no longer the ceiling, it's the floor. Now, I think this is between you and God. This is where the growing up and maturity thing kicks in. But you need to see where you fall. Who is speaking into your life? I was about, I'd say, 22, 23 when I had this conversation for the first time about tithe. I want to introduce to you another friend who taught me more about giving than anyone else in my life. And that happened when I was about 35. I'm a slow learner. It took me quite a little while to get there. This man's name is Ole Ashi. Ole, no, for those of you who have like Swedish grandparents or parents, no, not Ole as in Swedes. Ole means father or father of. Ashi was his eldest son. Ole Ashi lived in the bush. He's a Maasai tribesman, lived in East Africa, somewhere along the, Mas- the uh, Kenya-Tanzania border. What I want to do is I want to read you a story, a story that I wrote from some years ago so I would not lose this. Because I know every now and then in your life you have a moment where you understand things have changed, that you've been given a, a window to see something or understand something from God that you are now responsible for. Nancy, my wife, was one of those that cracked the window. Oliashi, he didn't open the window. He, like, tore the whole wall down. Windows were unnecessary. Let me read you the story. It was 1994. I was in a district called Tia Manangan along the Kenya-Tanzanian border in Maasai land. I was there with a team to help rebuild the home of a missionary worker sent from our church. It had burnt down in a freak accident. Everything had been lost. Money was raised, the exterior begun, and I, along with seven others, arrived to finish the major construction elements over the next two weeks. Though this family of five had lost everything, they were able to stay put and continue discipling a young emerging church that God had allowed them to see started in this place that had been their home now for ten years. This couple happened to be from Southern California. In addition to construction experience, we had brought some asthma medicine with us for one of the church leaders. It was hard to get there. It was, this asthma medicine was very hard to get there, and it was very expensive. The missionary had managed to get some donated stateside, and we brought it with us. One day, Byron, that would be the missionary, and I took off on dirt bikes overland to deliver the meds to a man named Oleashi, who lived in a village way out in the bush. And friends, when I say way out in the bush, to get to the, the village, the first village where our friends lived, was 25 kilometers, so let's say 15 miles. It took six hours. It was not a good road. So we went from Jeep to dirt bikes to go to the next village. You can imagine how good that road was. Anyway, that's where Oliashi lived. Way off the beaten track, a long way away from our modern world. Oliashi had been a follower of Jesus for two years at this point. Oliashi was illiterate. He learned by listening and observing. Oliashi was led by the Spirit, taught by the Holy Spirit, in ways those of us who read will never understand. And I'm guessing all of us in this room at some level can read. This man was completely illiterate. Oleashi lived traditionally in a mud-dung hut with his two wives and five little children. This man owned no cows. It's a crying 
That's a major issue for Masai. He means he's very poor. He owned no cows. He had very few goats and he had a very, very small garden. He lived a subsistence existence in a place where there's precious little to subsist upon. We arrived unexpectedly that day. We surprised Oliashi. He invited us into his boma. That's his home. A boma is a mud and dung hut. Stands about this tall. It's filled full of smoke inside because there's no windows to let the smoke out. But it keeps you safe from the wild animals. He invited us into his boma. And there sitting almost on the ground, just barely below the smoke layer in his hut, we drank tea. And we talked about the local news. Now, Oliashi had no sugar for our tea. So he reached under his little cowhide hammock bed and he pulled out a very small box. This is the typical vault for everything valuable a Maasai nomad will ever own. It contains all of his valuables. Hear that. All of his valuables are in a box about the size of a shoebox. He opened it up. In it, I saw his personal identity papers for himself and a couple of the kids who actually had ID papers and two Kenyan shillings which is next to nothing in value. But that was all the money he possessed. Doesn't carry a wallet. This is where it would be if there was any money. Two shillings. He was going to use his two shillings to buy a little sugar for our tea. Before he could send one of his sons out to a neighbor for the sugar, he was stopped by Byron, who explained that Scott didn't really like sugar, and maybe we could just skip it this time. Oliashi started laughing as hard as he could. He thought that was hilarious. He put his box back under his little cot and poured our tea, noting how odd Mzungus, we white ghosts are, in our likes and dislikes. Because after all, no, uncivil, no civilized person would drink tea without sugar. Clearly, I had been identified as the uncivilized person in the Boma. Now, while doing the construction here, I had noted something different among the Maasai in this district that others, other areas I had visited and that was that they hunted with bow and arrow. Byron suggested it might be a great take-home item for my boys, who were about five and ten or so at the time, and suggested maybe we could find someone in a village somewhere who might sell theirs. He mentioned this to Oliashi as we drank our tea and became acquainted. Well, with great ceremony, he offered to provide one personally to me, one of these setups, and he had his son bring it to me. He handed it to me with great ceremony. I thanked him profusely. I marveled at this bow. And then he and Byron burst out in great peals of laughter, falling literally off the little sofa onto the floor. For he had given me the bow and arrow of a five-year-old. This was a trainer bow and arrow, so to speak. Everybody laughed, his wives, his kids. I think even the goats that were literally in the house with us were laughing at me. <clears throat> My ignorance of not knowing something so simple as this is a child's bow humored them endlessly. It made for a rich, practical joke. But the laughter finally ended, and Oleashi reached under his cot. This is the best part about having a missions pastor in the room. I got stuff. He reaches under his cot, and he pulls out this long, dark, it's beautifully. If you can see the grain on this thing, it's perfect. He knew the perfect tree. He, he sanded it down with a leaf that's like sandpaper. He oiled this thing up. It's a bunch of cow sinew. You know how tight it is? It's like 15 years down the road, still tight as can be. I can't pull it if I had to. Let me put this down here. And presented me with this bow. He pulled this leather quiver out from under his bed. 
filled full of arrows, heads off now, all poison tipped, which he put in the fire to thankfully cook the poison off because he figured if I didn't know enough to put sugar in my tea, then I was surely going to kill myself before I ever got out of his boma. And that would really be embarrassing. Talk about a party foul. Oyashi gave me this beautiful thing. And through Byron, he asked if that was the kind of thing I had in mind. It was magnificent. And now I too knew the difference between a man's tool and a child's toy. It was that different. Byron explained that Oyashi would sell it to me if I would like it and that he would make another set for himself. Byron suggested a fair price. That's about a month's income that I would pay this man. And in that place, that was about 30 U.S. dollars a month's income. I would have paid a lot more, but Byron said that's the fair price. If you, you can afford more, but if you pay more, it messes with the local economy. Pay the fair price. And this man is my friend. Pay him a fair price, but nothing more. So I reached into my own little vault, my wallet, handed Oleashi the money with great gratitude. He got out his little vault from underneath the bed, put my money, now alongside his two little shillings, his personal papers, and he put it back under his cot. Now, I don't know how much time had passed before I realized something had changed. I was just looking at this. I was admiring it. I was looking. I was trying to figure, you know, the technology. How do they do this? I mean, this is, I grew up in California. I learned about Native American peoples and how they did this. But this man is still doing it today, he and his tribe. I was, I was marveling at the technology of the thing. But something had changed. Because while I was inspecting the arrows, the boma had become really, really silent. Now, now it was already a little silent because I couldn't speak any Ma. And so there wasn't much English being spoken. So for me, it was mostly always silent. But there was a little English because the whole time we were there, Byron had been translating to me bits and pieces. You know, he thought what I needed to know. But now it was stony still because Byron had stopped translating and I don't know how long it had been. But all of a sudden, the silence of his non-translation was overwhelming. And as I looked through this dark, smoky boma more closely at Oleashi, he was speaking very quietly now, not boisterously and very intensely. I shift my gaze to Byron and he returned the intense look, but his eyes were filled with tears and a steady stream of them was running down his cheeks. I could not make out what was happening. I mentioned at the outset of telling you the story that we were there to rebuild a house. This house had burnt down while this couple, Byron and Lisa, were celebrating their 10th anniversary. Some other folks came up to run a medical clinic and while they were there for a week, they managed to burn their home down. God had used Byron to plant a kingdom community in a place that had never known a Christian. Oliashi had come to know God through this effort and this family and this couple. He was powerfully and radically saved, called to God. And he had learned to pursue God with all his heart, mind, and spirit. He was a remarkable man. All this without the benefit of ever reading a word of Scripture. He just listened, learned, and asked the Holy Spirit, Do your thing. My God is big. He can do anything. After a few minutes, Oleashi was done with his story and he fell silent. And we all continued in silence. Byron asked permission of Oleashi if he could tell me what had just transpired. 
You see, Oliashi had been heartbroken for his friends upon learning of the fire. He saw their grief and he saw their pain. He saw their three young boys suffering. Everything they owned had been destroyed. He watched as they moved into a shed which had not been burned on their property, and they lived in a shed for three months. He prayed with them and he prayed for them. Oliashi asked God for something on their behalf. Oliashi made a vow to God, and it was a vow that was only known to God and Oliashi. The request was for God to provide abundantly for this family's recovery. And the vow he made was that he would be a material part of that recovery. He asked God, this incredibly poor, indigent, indigent man, he asked God to do something only God could do. Oliashi wanted to give a profound sacrificial gift for Byron to help him rebuild, just as he has received a profound sacrificial gift from them in the form of the good news of Jesus. They had come so far to live amongst them there at Tiamanangan. And then this day happened. Byron and a stranger show up out of the blue. The stranger wants to buy a bow and an arrow. The stranger pays an equivalent of one month's income for this family. Do you want to guess what he vowed to God? That this man with nothing but two shillings, a nickel, was all he owned. And there were friends, there were kids with swollen, swollen bellies in that boma with us. Those were his children who were malnourished. At least by my assessment. But this day, the stranger shows up and provides exactly one month's income. When he had no hope for it, the miracle took place. That day, Oliashi had explained to Byron that God had answered his prayer. This was a day of celebration. This was the day that God made a way for him to keep the vow that he had secretly made to God. That day I saw the story of the widow's might lived out for those of you who know it. I saw a man with a world of need and a world of hurt, surrounded by his undernourished family, a man with serious health issues and few prospects, had one moment received an amazing blessing and without hesitation gave every bit of it away. Oliashi, who took out his little box now of valuables, retrieved his $30, which was nothing as far as this project goes. Friends, we were there to build a house. Yes, it's a developing world. It might have cost $25,000. It wasn't much. $30, how far is that going to go? It's not going to go very far, is it? But this man knew something about how big God was and that you can't outgive God. And that day, this man who couldn't afford to buy their, his guest sugar. I realized that day I met a man who knew how to give everything away. A man who walked intimately with God. A man who had things that he knew about his faith that I did not know about mine. That he had been places with God that I have not been. I have not been to this day in those places. I do not have the courage to give it all away. I do not have the courage to give much beyond what's comfortable. Oliashi was a man who had met God in profound ways. And I had the privilege of meeting that illiterate nomad in the middle of nowhere with a few goats and severe asthma, two years old in his faith. Teach me everything I now know about generosity. Oliashi died just two years after that meeting from his asthma. I look forward to the day where he's going to tell me the story himself.
in a language that we are going to understand together. Because God is reconciling all peoples to himself. Those who would accept the gift of Jesus. That man who taught me about generosity would speak to us today. I want you to join me in Matthew 6, verse 25. 25 to 34. Continuing that conversation about where your treasure lies. Because Jesus had a lot to say on this subject about a big God. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Oliashi knew this story. His life story told me he knew this story. I can read it. I can teach it. I can tear it apart in an inductive study. I can do all sorts of tricks with the text. But that man ate, drank, and was this. And why do you worry about clothes? Jesus continues. See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Seek first his kingdom. Seek first his righteousness. All these things will be given to you. Therefore, I love this verse. I've always loved this from the moment I bumped into it, probably 30 years ago. It's so practical. It's so honest and raw. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. If you ask the world what they think about money, and wealth, I think they would say, spend it first, save it second, and give it third. Jesus seems to be saying, give it first, save it second, spend it third. In your notes when you came in, I put some stuff on the cover of that. It's out of a little book called The Treasure Principle which is a little throwaway pop version of a fabulous meaty book uh, that's called Money, Wealth, and Possessions by Randy Alcorn. It's filled full of very practical principles. If we're going to be a community that evidences one one of the spiritual truths of what it means to follow God, it's to give back to him who's given so much, then we need to learn to do this better. As a community, in a few weeks, you'll have the opportunity, if you want to, 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 have, to spend some time with, with David Podley, one of our warehouse members, who's already done one sort of get acquainted finance workshop. He's going to do another one a Sunday evening coming up here soon called Tithing on a Tight Budget. I think that pretty much applies to all of us here. Tithing on a Tight Budget. Friends, we've got to learn this. We, got, we need to think about these things, and we need to do it with others, both who've been there, like my wife who beat me years and by years and years and years. Maybe we need some who are less than literate, to teach us how to follow God in other areas of our life. But we need each other to teach us these things. So here's some final thoughts for you as I wrap. 
And these are all in the meddling category. So when I ask you first, is the subject making you uncomfortable? If you didn't say yes then, I hope it's about to make you real uncomfortable now. Questions for you. How do you view what you have as something entrusted to you by God? How do you view what God has given you as it relates to this church community? Do you provide for your ministry team through your gifts? Do you provide for this church through your gifts? Do you give to your church as an expression of your commitment to God? Okay, that's the serious meddling. Now I'm going to get personal and let you get personal with God. I want you to take out that piece of paper or you can take out your cell phone if you've got your calendar on it. That's where you keep it or PDA or something. I've got some questions that Jess is going to throw up on screen here for us. And I want to ask you to do this. I want you to look at this list and find one where you really sense, yeah, this is the probably the area I need to grow the most, whether it's becoming a regular and disciplined giver. Is it reducing consumption? Becoming a joyful giver? Eliminating debt? Learning generosity? Defeating envy? Becoming more aware of commercial manipulation? Exploring tithing as a regular practice? And here's what I want you to do. As Jeremy and the team come up, I want you to take a moment, pick one of those questions, write it down. And this next week, I want you to search the scriptures a little bit about what God might have to say about this. Go to some of your spiritual friends. Maybe it's your hub this week. You want to talk about this question in, you know, in a nice, safe place? Because, guys, we're all in this together. Don't be like Scott. Don't have to travel 12,000 miles to learn generosity. The community that is the kingdom community should always be known as a generous place. God has a lot to teach us. We have a lot to learn. And we have a lot of ways we can respond. May God give us wisdom as we sort out how he would have us respond this week to these things.